I still remember reading my first Nicholson Baker book. It was The Mezzanine, and over its 150 pages, it chronicles a man riding an escalator up from the ground floor to the mezzanine. Nothing else happens, and yet, the world of minutiae is revealed via the text and also via endlessly digressing footnotes. Shoelaces and straws, and whether to say yes or no to a bag for carrying the milk home, these are all things we talk about in this short escalator ride. What's extraordinary about the mezzanine, and is also true about another one of Baker's books, A Box of Matches, so spoiler alert, man tries to light fire in the morning using a box of matches, both of these books slow down the pace of life to a pace where all the details get noticed. Suddenly I'm seeing things and noticing things and feeling their texture and noticing what I'm noticing. Now, for someone like me, who's a little bit in my head and a little bit dreaming out into the future and a little bit moving too fast, these books feel a bit like bullet time in the Matrix movies only with the detritus of everyday living zipping past or not zipping past, rather than needing to choose the red pill or the blue pill. Hey, welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book. Madeline Dorr is someone who reminds me of myself. She is a great author and she's a great asker of questions. But her questions are a bit different than mine. I like to ask obvious questions of people. I've always been drawn to asking someone what they've had for lunch and what time they wake up in the morning and and what their days look like because I think that there's so much that can be revealed in those mundane details. Madeline's made a career out of that. She's talked with important people about how they cope with the ebb and flow of their days and all these answers ended up in her best-selling and I might say brilliantly entitled book, I Didn't Do the Thing Today with its subtitle, letting go of productivity guilt. Now, you might think that this means Madeline has it all figured out, that she knows the rules of life. And honestly, I was keen to find out exactly what they were. So Madeline. I don't know if I know the rules, actually. I've, I've often felt like you can kind of spot someone Often it seems like they've been given the instruction manual or the rule book and they, they can almost, you, you look at their career trajectory and you think, how did they know to do that? And then followed by that thing and then the next thing and how did it all perfectly stack up and how do they see this sort of ladder in front of them and, and know how to climb it? And I feel like I've just been sort of, you know, <laughs> flailing <laughs> instead. Yes. I know what this feels like. And I've also come to realize that often the flailing, the lack of knowing the rules, is permission or maybe it's necessity to experiment. It's not hard to cross a boundary that you don't know exists. And in fact, not knowing the rules can be a source of liberation. I've been very quite profoundly aware of the rules that I've imposed on myself and slowly learning how to unlearn those because I think they're the ones that are quite unnecessary. You know, we can have a lot of expectations placed on us or pressures placed on us, and they can be difficult to extract from. But the rules that we make up in our own mind are the ones that I think we can experiment with. It's a challenge to get to the heart of the rules that we've internalized and made, capital T, the truth. I'm holding one up to the light right now about my own work ethic. I'm wondering 
what is the rules I have around that and where do they come from? So I asked Madeline what rule was most liberating for her to break. I think maybe what's really resonated or mm. maybe what where I've seen sort of a really big shift in myself um, is recognising that as humans we can have this tendency to put our worth in places that are outside of us right. and one of those places is very much our work um, and I think I've really managed to untether my sense of self-worth from what I do um, and so that means that I'm no longer having feeling this need or urgency to fill um, my time just so that you know I can be um, seen as being productive and or you know I don't need to sort of prove my worth through achievements or the sense of ambition and it's kind of just made everything a lot more spacious mm. and interestingly meant that I have more um, awareness of what actually the things that, that matter and creating space for those things. Um, and I think that that, that rule of, 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 you know, yeah. maybe it's validation from other people. Um, yeah. I, I've just tackling that one area of seeing it in my work means that I've been able to maybe start seeing where else that pops up and how it can pop up in also our relationships. You know, we can put our sense of self-worth in whether we're chosen or whether, mm -hmm. you know, um, we're loved or, um, and, and how we, or whether we, you know, even people pleasing, you know, it's with strangers. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's maybe one that, um, it, it takes really a lot of helpful. work and it's still a work in progress, but yeah. Was there a, was there a process that helped you with that? Cause I, cause I've felt the challenge of that. Um, not entirely about external validation, but certainly about having my sense of self entangled in the work that I do. You know, mm -hmm. am I working? Am I producing? Am I creating? And mm -hmm. um, finding that surprisingly difficult to untangle, or perhaps <laughs> naively thinking it was going to be easy to untangle, but however you want to frame it. I'm, I'm curious to know what the journey or the process was for you to come to that sense of self. Yeah, well, perhaps two things. And the, the one, one answer is, um, years of psychoanalysis has been, mm -hmm. you know, incredibly illuminating, um, and and you know being okay with um, circling around the same patterns again and again and again, mm -hmm. and seeing that that's actually how change happens is kind of bumping up against the same thing. Um, so that's one approach, but that's again, you know, quite a quite an investment of time. Um, but I think also, you know, the um, seeing that seeing so clearly that I'm not alone in, in many of these very stumbles and interviewing so many people about their days and seeing that they also encounter things like perfectionism or self-doubt um, or, you know, struggle with productivity guilt and all of these things, starting to see that there's this shared experience and that, you know, not being alone means that you can kind of give yourself permission to um, really sort of investigate those experiences right. and, and find your own way with things and, and seeing that there's some, I, I suppose, patterns collectively. Um, and when it comes to kind of the doing, um, really seeing that things are a cycle, I was able to kind of, in, in the end, instead of finding a secret from interviewing people about their productivity and routines and, and what they did, it, it revealed that actually there's these cycles and we can kind of start to identify our own process and our own cycle and allow for, tho allow for those. No, I um, 
was part of a mastermind group for many years. And in many ways, the most powerful thing that group did for 15 years was every time I moved into the part of the cycle, that was me going, what's the point of it all? Is it all <laughs> hopeless? I've got no ideas. I've got nothing. I am nothing. They're like, Michael, I, we've, we've seen this so many times. This passes in a week. You know, talk yes. to us again in a week's time and you'll be fine. And I was like, I, you know, that might be true yeah. actually. Now, now I remember it. So I love that. I think yeah. that's what breeds trust, isn't it? In mm. yourself. Mm. Yeah. It's just like, you know what? Uh, you can trust yourself to be a mess at this stage and you can trust yourself that this too will pass. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Madeline, what book have you chosen to read for us? I have chosen the book Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life by Amy Krauss Rosenthal. Um, is that all I say about that for now? <laughs> <laughs> you can, well, you can say anything you want about it, but tell, I mean, how did you come across this book? I mean, what, what called to you about it? Uh, I originally... Um, encountered Amy's work, I think through her TED talk, which um, one of them is titled Seven Notes of Life. Mm -hmm. And it introduces this experiment that she did where, well, she made a, um, a, a video that went quite viral at the time, which was called 17 Things I Made. Mm -hmm. And uh, then she put this call out to people to come together to create the 18th thing. And she was, you know, maybe expecting that a couple of people would arrive. Um, a couple of people would arrive, or maybe you know, a handful, and hundreds of people arrived to make this 18th thing. Mm. And there's there's video footage of it. And together they made music, and they made someone's day, and they made the most of what they have. And so it was this theme of making. Mm. And um, I remember seeing this introduction, and then the the actual TED talk goes on to share these wonderful lessons from um, life. But I thought, oh, like you can just do these kind of joyful things in the world and bring people together and have these experiments that are participatory and, you know, like, you know, a, a, a movie scene. Um, right. And you can, you can bring that into your own life. And I was just so beautifully touched by that. And so then I um, became obsessed with everything that Amy has done. And, you know, she's, she's written over 30, she had written over 30 children's books and, and made many more of these experimental films and um, written unconventional memoirs. And so uh, an encyclopedia of an ordinary life um, is, I've stumbled upon that and it's it's probably my most highlighted, cherished book. Um, and it just, I think, I think what's really touched me about Amy um, is that when I read her book or, or go back to her experiments, she's now passed, she um, died of cancer in 2017 and um, is well known for a modern love column that she wrote called You May Want to Marry My Husband, um, which was published just 10 days before she died. Um, but I think that returning to her work always makes me so acutely aware of, of, of our mortality and also mm. of what it means to be someone who's an al alive person. Um, it's that, that Howard Thurman quote, which is, don't ask for what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and go do it because the world needs more people to come alive. And I think that Amy Krauss Rosenthal is one of those people that came alive while she was here. And if she can re remind us to do the same, it's an incredible gift. Well, that is an extraordinarily beautiful introduction to this book. So thank you. I mean, <laughs> you haven't even <laughs> read it yet and I'm already like kind of moved. So thank you. Oh, um, yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward. I mean, I know this is an unusual book as well because it's structured like an encyclopedia. So it's not 
mm. paragraphs of prose. It's it's different from that. But I'm yes. excited to see how you've curated two pages from this wonderful book. <laughs> so, Madeline, over to you. Thank you. Uh, so it is a collection of thoughts and experiences. Um, so I've just selected a few from different different um, parts of the alphabet, essentially. And so this first one is called Busy. How you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How's your week? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy is the answer. Yes, yes. I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original and more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? How about, I'm hungry for a waffle. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm annoyed by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is a short way of saying, suggesting my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. The next one is called change. This money was left here intentionally and is specifically for your use. I know it's not much, perhaps just enough to treat yourself to a cookie, a coffee, a lottery ticket, donation to the homeless, a new pair of socks. In any case, I hope it changes your day for the better. All I ask in return is that you let me know how you spend it. You don't have to sign your name and a prepaid postcard is included. Enjoy. Every week for close to a year, I left an envelope containing this note, some loose change and a stamped postcard addressed to my PO box for a random stranger to discover. I'd like to say that I set out to do this for purely altruistic reasons, but more accurately, I did it because I'm easily bored, easily amused, and the experiments such as this inject a morsel of suspense into the week. That, and I really like getting mail. Next one is called Happiness. I'm turning left. Look, everyone, my blinker is on and I'm turning left. I'm so happy to be alive, driving along, making a left turn. I'm serious. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing at this moment. Existing on a Tuesday, going about my business, on my way somewhere, turning left. There is nothing disconcerting or unpleasant or unfortunate about this moment. It is exceptionally nice, plain and perfect. This one's called Returning to Life After Being Dead. When I am feeling dreary, annoyed, and generally unimpressed by life, I imagine what it would be like to come back to this world for just a day after having been dead. I imagine how sentimental I would feel about the very things I once found stupid, hateful, or mundane. Oh, there's a light switch. I haven't seen a light switch in so long. I didn't realize how much I missed light switches. Oh, oh, and look, the stairs up to our front porch are still completely cracked. Hello, cracks. Let me get a good look at you. And there's my neighbour, standing there, fantastically alive, just the same, still punctuating her sentences with, you know what I'm saying? Why did that ever bother me? It's so endearing. Oh, that was so good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I just, uh, it's so incredible to share these words. <laughs> well, where's the magic in these words for you, Madeline? Hmm. Oh, again, I think it's really about that, that coming alive feeling and Truly, I think encountering Amy Krauss Rosenthal and that permission to experiment with life and to remember that you're alive while you're living it was really so um, empowering for me and so something that I took into my own experiments and my own, uh, I guess, playfulness with my day, I hope, when I when I can remember to. But it seems like how did Amy remember to do this? And I, I think that um, I, I guess it's, it's, it's also just I think it's so clear that there's an ability to see the good and beautiful in things and other people. And I think when we do that, um, 
the things and the people around us reflect even more beautiful things. Like I think that that sort of that that final part of returning to life after being dead, I think that that's a beautiful experiment in and of itself mm. and something that, you know, we can get to the end of the day and, and, and say that it's a failure because we didn't do certain things. But if we could reflect on that day as if we're reliving it coming back after we, we're no longer right. here, how would we judge the day differently? And I think we would find these small good things and appreciate them. Um, and also, I think, be more patient with other people. I think that there's there's so much that we can get caught up in in terms of, um, I don't know, I suppose perceived hurts from other people and we can right. kind of lament those things. But in that one kind of example, it really, for me, illustrates this idea of the Hanlon's razor, which is, I'm sure you're familiar with that, never attribute to malice what's <laughs> adequately explained by stupidity. stupidity yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's like it's this beautiful sort of these, these generous assumptions there. In, you know, if you, you sort of saw your neighbor's annoying quirk, you'd kind of maybe have more patience for it. And um, maybe when we make more generous assumptions, things tend to kind of work more smoothly. Like even if you go to a restaurant mm -hmm. and if you go in there grumpy and annoyed and like, oh, well, why are they being so rude? But if you think, oh, well, they're really busy and they're focused and they're not intending to be rude to me, you can right. shift the whole experience, I think. Madeline, what's the relationship between playfulness and routine? Hmm. Well, that's, that's really interesting. It's sort of, um, it's, it's almost reminding me of how you can kind of, you can plan for spontaneity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it's kind of got that interesting um, combo because in some ways, if, if you do have a routine um, and you have those kind of decisions made for yourself each day, mm. it means that you kind of have a greater capacity to, um, you know, for focus and attention for, for, for novelty because mm. some, some other decisions have been made. And so maybe um, the relationship is, you know, allowing yourself to, you, you've got that routine and then you can kind of make room for the playfulness. But I think right. that sometimes it can go another way where the routine creates such rigidity mm. that you leave no space for playfulness. You know, if someone has this kind of every morsel of the day planned, then, you know, a phone call from a friend um, can be seen as a, an irritation or, or a spontaneous invitation, you know, is it an automatically a no because you've got this other kind of idea for the day. Right. And so we can also sometimes... Um, not leave space for that playfulness, I think. So I think it's it's an interesting tension that I think we need to see which 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 part of this, the scale yeah, we might yeah. be on. You know, it's funny you talk about that kind of planning for spontaneity. You know, I'm just realizing that it's basically uh, probably 35 years ago since I did my first ever kind of self-help, self-development course um, mm -hmm. back in, at, in Canberra. And I was like 17 or 18 at the time. And it was about how to be spontaneous. <laughs> I got so much grief from all of my friends for so long about that because they're like, what a ridiculous title. But I'm like, but there's wisdom in that, which is you create space within which you can play um, yes. through, through the structures that you, you use. Yeah. Can you remember anything that was like a, a tangible sort of way to be more spontaneous? Well, it was the first time... Um, I can't remember much about the spontaneous um, mm -hmm. lessons, but it was the first time I was asked to kind of draw your life story. You know, that exercise where you're like, okay, tell, tell your story, draw your story, and what do you notice from that? And so in some ways it felt like the first time I'd been asked to look at myself 
from outside myself and go, who, <laughs> who the hell are you, Michael? Um, a question that I'm still unable to answer today, but it's an interesting <laughs> question to continue to sit with and watch me change and not change in terms of who I am and what I do. Mm. Yeah. That's going to lead me to the question I want to ask you, Madeline, which is mm. I know you said at the start you're in a process of kind of transition and in some ways reinventing yourself at the moment. Um, how do you know what's essential about who you are and how do you know what's transitory? Oh, I should have known that you'd just ask some brilliantly <laughs> complex questions because you're <laughs> um, this is your you know you've just put so many beautiful questions into the world for us all. So um, no surprises there, but I suppose okay. So mm, it's interesting because I, I I guess I don't see this period as a reinventing of mm. myself, more of just a continuing on as myself. Right. <laughs> um, and so uh, I I think it. It's such an interesting question that you put before about, you know, who who are you? And I, I think that it just takes a long time to become who you are. Mm -hmm. And so it's not as if I'm aware of what I'm shedding or what I need to hold on to. I'm just learning about it, I suppose, right. and bumping up against it again and again. Um, you know, the ugly parts as well as the parts that you're proud of. Um and so I don't think you you even I don't even know if you can actively know what what you're shedding mm. or when because it just you yeah. change slowly. Yeah, <laughs> impossible. Like it's, an, it's an impossible question. So sorry about that. Um, I love it though. It's like such a nice way to kind of probe and just you know say something that might surprise you, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah. Hmm. No, I loved I loved what you said earlier when you said change happens by bumping up against the same things time and time mm. again. And yeah. and part of what that opens for me, Madeline, is perhaps it's wrong to think about essential part and transitory part, but it's like what are the what are the repeated cycles that you keep noticing, repeat the patterns about who you are in relationship to others in the world that you keep noticing. And maybe that's what becomes most essential about who you are, rather than it being something just about you and you alone. It's always, it's always about who you are in relationship to the world and to others. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know either. We'll but it's, yeah, grasp, it's interesting to think grasp about. Our way into the mist of existentialism here. Yes, yeah, so we can just like the whole podcast can just be you and I being like, hmm. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, as we think about it. Yeah. <laughs> um you're you you're not reinventing yourself and I love that I love that uh, adjustment, which is like I'm you know, it's more just continuing to be who you are. Um but and it's also true that you've um stop doing a number of things that you were known for, um, podcasts and, and blogging, um, and were very successful about, um, when was the moment, was there a moment where you said you knew that it was time to stop doing those things? Yeah, I think it was, it was quite clear because, um, the book is such a nice bow to those mm. projects. Um, and it's interesting because I had long had the goal to write a book. So as, when I started my project, Extraordinary Routines, you know, I, as a writer, you know, 
naturally I wanted it to be a book. And so I, I remember that whole process of of pitching it a couple of times um, and even had a, a publisher who was interested and they said, okay, well, just get me a sample chapter and we'll go from there. Right. And I was like, great, we'll give that to you in two weeks. And then two years <laughs> later, I still hadn't written that sample chapter and I would lament, you know, I was like, oh, why aren't you doing this thing? Like, why aren't you just mm. writing this book, this sample chapter? Um, and, you know, I'd feel so, so guilty about the fact that I hadn't done that. And I, I you know, would think that I'm, I'm wasting time and, and all these sort of things. But actually that was all part of the process in, mm. I was still investigating. I was still learning. I, there was still more to uncover in sort of this, this, um, pursuit of, you know, finding the answers about productivity and I, I hadn't right. completed it yet. So I wasn't ready to write the book. And so continuing on the interviews, even though it felt like I was not writing the book, was the very thing I had to do to be able to have the resources and the insights to write the book. <laughs> and mm. so I learned that there was, you know, sometimes we do need to be patient with things and they take a lot longer than we think and often um, they're better off for it. Mm. Um, and so I think that allowing that to to complete that whole cycle meant that when the when I had written the book I was like this is done this is complete this is where I got to um and this is everything I've learned from this project and there it is um and ta -da. things can ta -da, <laughs> things can you know I think again back to sort of being inspired by Amy Krauss Rosenthal it's it, things are just experiments and projects and mm. bits and pieces and we don't have to we're not tied to anything forever and we're allowed to kind of wrap that project up if, if we feel like we've learned what we needed to learn from it and same goes for a relationship you know if, if, if it feels like it's met its end that that doesn't mean that it's a failure just because it's right. ended um and so i think i just embraced that ending um eventually and um so now it's like okay well what's the next project and that can be an interesting space because i think you know we're so often asked you know what's next for you and it's sometimes right. we just don't know <laughs> and so yeah. allowing um that to bubble up in and of itself i think is another process to be patient about i i what's coming to me is the 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 metaphor around you know things need to be ripe <laughs> before you before mm. you pick them Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, yeah. that, that publisher noticed a green peach and you're like, ah, it needs more sunshine. It needs more time. Yes. Um, and all right. How do I ask this question, Madeline? It's in my head. It's another <laughs> impossible question, but it's something it. along the lines of, you know, you're, you're in the process of waiting for something to ripen now. Mm -hmm. How do you hold the space for the sun to shine? for time to pass for that new thing, whatever it is to, to ripen and be ready to be noticed by you because it's, um, it's a, you know, it's a quiet discipline to be able to be patient for that. Mm. Yeah. Cause it can induce a bit of panic, can't it? <laughs> exactly. I'm panicking yeah. on your behalf, even as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, th I think that trust is one part of it, but so I think if you have the foundation of trust, um, that, you know, something will inevitably bubble up. There's this one, I remember listening to a podcast, um, and I, I unfortunately can't even attribute it, but it was this one line she was, she was, um, the, the host was having, I think it was called millennial, the podcast. 
Um, and she was speaking to her boss and having a bit of a freak out about the project itself, the podcast, and what if it doesn't work out and what if nothing happens and what if it's terrible? And the boss just says, well, you know, you've got a drive in you and that never goes away. And I heard that line and thought, oh, oh, that it just, <laughs> it just really, I, I paused because that's the thing that doesn't go. The project can come to an end, mm. but you might have your curiosity, your drive, your kindness. These things are inherent and they don't go away. And so if you trust that, then something will come. Um, and so I think having that curiosity as this this thing, uh, maybe this goes back to that beautiful impossible question you had, you know, <laughs> what to hold on to and maybe yeah. it's those things. And so I think that's what I hold on to and also just remembering that each moment, you know, we can rush to the next thing or panic that it won't come, but then we miss this moment. And so, you know, yeah. we might look back in five years and think, oh, remember that time when, you know, I was able to just kind of have some time and space to think about the next thing? Why did I right. lament that <laughs> now that I've, you know, got so much going on? And, you know, yeah. um, I think people say that a lot about parenting, you know, it's like mm. rushing through those early stages and then missing it when it's gone. Maybe right. that's very human, but um, that's another thing that I just try to remember what if this moment um, changes? What will I? What would I appreciate it rather than yeah. feeling the panic? What What if anything are you ambitious for, Madeline? Well, maybe having a life that's more playful and experimental. Mm. You know, yeah. yeah. I don't want to. I have such a tendency to compare myself, and so I could go down that rabbit hole of comparing myself to Amy Krauss right. Rosenthal. To live like that is just how beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm quite there, but <laughs> um, I think it takes a lot of courage to, you know, put out these experiments and, you know, there's you're open to so much potential reje rejection as well. Um, yeah. You know, hey, everyone, come and meet me in the <laughs> square in Chicago. Yeah, Tumbleweed, tumble path. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. And, you know, also at the same time, I can't do that because I'm not, I'm not, I'm myself, you know, mm. um, not Amy. So, yeah. um, it's about, I guess, being, becoming the most alive version of yourself and, um, even discovering what it is that makes you come alive. I think that that's still something yeah. to think about. Madeline, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Um, Thank a, you. a final question I've got for you is what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Hmm. Oh, we, we said so much <laughs> that um, surprised me. So um, I think that I suppose one of the little um, entries I wanted to talk about was this idea that um, the change where Amy had that experiment of leaving yeah. the change with the postcards. Um, and I thought that was, again, this beautiful inspiration for experimenting with your day. But I love this idea of, um, you know, even this small thing, I hope it changes your day for the better. And I think we overlook, you know, as we rush through our own lives, that these small act of, acts of kindness, you know, they can really change someone else's day. And then that spreads, you know, someone else, even sometimes when you might be in a bit of a grumpy mood and you're walking down the street, but someone smiles at you, you just think, oh, like you can't help often, but smile back. And then you're the one smiling at another stranger who's walking by. And then that's yeah. that beautiful ripple effect of, you know, kindness begets kindness and I suppose all of those things tie in quite beautifully together about, you know, having those generous assumptions and, you know, remembering to be kind and not to say, you know, there will be times like not to be Pollyanna. Like I don't think we all walk around being kind constantly, 
um, but remembering to be and, and not delaying that kindness when we do remember, um, I think can be really powerful. And so much of our days are emphasized by, you know, how much we do and, you know, that busy, <laughs> that right. busy kind of badge of honor. But I think, um, yeah, if we measure the days by those moments of connection, I think that could be um, a nice reframe. I don't know about you, but I want to be an alive person. What I'm taking from this conversation, and I really, really want to remember it, is that I have permission to experiment with life. Madeline said it right after her reading, you're alive while you're living. Now, that would sound like banal nonsense if it was on a bumper sticker, but here in this conversation, it just struck me as a deep truth. So let me ask you, what experiments do you want to run just to keep your aliveness alive? What's your version of leaving the change in the envelope, the unexpected gift you have to give the world? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation with Madeline, and I suspect you did, I've got two to recommend for you from the Two Pages archive, which is now getting pretty big. One is Mason Curry, who is also a writer about uh, the patterns authors and creators go through. That uh, interview is called Fragile and Fleeting. And then uh, a more recent interview with Andrea Small, A Beginner's Guide to Ambiguity. She works at the Stanford D School. Um, and her book is about ambiguity, and I love that conversation. If you're wanting more Madeline, and who wouldn't, um, I'd suggest you go to madelinedor.com. So it's a little tricky, the spelling. Madeline is M-A-D-E-L-E-I-N-E-D-O-R-E.com, Madeline Dorr. And, you know, she's just going through this interesting process of reinventing herself. She just started a news newsletter, which I subscribe to. It's Madeline Dorr on things, and I would recommend you get that. It's thoughtful and wise and detailed and yet universal at the same time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for recommending and sharing the conversations. Um, just picking one episode and sharing it with one person is a wonderful way for us to slowly but surely grow our listener base. And thank you if you've taken the time to give us a review on any of the platforms, stars or words. Um, it's encouraging for me and it's also encouraging for others that they know that this podcast is a podcast worth listening to. You're awesome. You're doing great. <laughs>